The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to step back from the week-to-week analysis that we normally do on topical issues, whether it's about the environment or geopolitics, and we're going to take a a much larger view of the China-Africa relationship and look at the question of trust. And trust is an interesting concept in geopolitics because without trust, there really is nothing. And I mean nothing. And it's a topic that I've been thinking about a lot lately in looking at the U.S.-China relationship and trying to explain to Chinese students and faculty and other people here that in the United States, there has been a dissolution of all trust in the Chinese and across every level of society. It used to be that in the United States, there were a variety of stakeholders who really invested in the China relationship. This was going back to the 90s when Bill Clinton was passing at that time the the most favored nation trading status. And he said, trust me, the Chinese, as they modernize, as they grow, they will liberalize. And he said, trust me, we have something going on in this relationship. There were scholars like Orville Schell and a number of others who really were engaged in China, who really believed that that too, that trust was really important in that bridge. And then, of course, there was business. And corporations led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said trust is really important for us to grow our businesses in China. Today, fast forward from 30 years from the 90s all the way up to today, there is not a single stakeholder group in the United States that really has a lot of trust. So really, again, Kobus, I'm thinking about the China-Africa relationship and what can be done to avoid the circumstances that we have now in the U.S.-China relationship before it's too late in the China-Africa relationship. So what do you think the the breakdown of trust in the U.S. really comes comes down to? And maybe more specifically or more, more importantly before that, what do you think that trust really constituted you know kind of what what were they trusting um what 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 was the 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 content of that trust because if i you know uh, reading back to a lot of commentators in the 90s it seemed that some of that trust was based on an assumption that China was going to follow a, a trajectory that we, you know, admittedly had seen in East Asia before, you know, um, developmentalist states centrally planned um, that became more and more uh, democratic over time from a pretty authoritarian, you know, background. Places like, I think that's true for Japan, it's true for South Korea, for Taiwan. Um and there seem to have been this kind of assumption that China will will become, uh, you know, will, will follow that model, but then also that China will become closer and closer to a U.S. model. Um, so what what I wonder about that is to which extent was that trust in China and to which extent was it trust in a narrative? There are two very important parts of this, and this will lead us into our Africa discussion. Number one, there was the naive belief that to modernize is to westernize. And that is something that Americans for a very, very long time have always believed in. I still think there's a group of Americans that still believe in this. 
And this was the idea that also that funded and fueled the ideas behind the Iraq war as well, that once we liberate, we will then be able to promote democracy in the Middle East and they will want to become like us. So the Chinese modernized, but they didn't westernize in their ideology. And that was a big disappointment for Americans and a lot of Americans across the political spectrum. This is one of the interesting things that China is one of the few issues in U.S. politics that really unites left and right. There are very few issues today to do it. But labor unions hate China because they feel they're taking the jobs and spoiling the environment. Conservatives now hate China because they feel they're cheating the system and undermining the international order and, and really hurting the United States on trade. So there was this naive notion that they didn't, when they modernized, they didn't westernize. That was, that was the naivete. There was also a separate part of this where there were lies involved. And the Chinese genuinely lied to, the, to Americans that said, we are going to stop subsidizing our industries. We're going to open our auto markets. We're going to make it easier for American companies to invest. We're going to make it you know, less onerous for Americans to engage the China market. None of that happened. All American tech companies, for the most part, particularly internet companies, failed here and were pushed out because the Chinese government had their thumb on the scales. Car companies, for example, have to enter into joint ventures with Chinese partners, giving 50% of their profits to those joint venture partners. Then on top of it was the geopolitics of it. The Chinese were, in the past 20 years, are now challenging American hegemony. So we've seen it mostly in Asia, but in other parts of the world, that too is something seen by Americans as a violation of the trust because China was supposedly supposed to be a, a peaceful rise. And yet now we see in the South China Sea and other places really less than peaceful, a very aggressive rise as perceived by Americans. The last point that really eroded the trust is the constant hacking, the, the theft of American intelligence, corporate secrets, it's estimated NPR did a, a great story just in the past few days, and I recommend everybody to check it out. The estimates now are that it's somewhere around 57 to $60 billion of American intellectual property was stolen by the Chinese. And it is very, very hard to get people on your side if that hacking keeps kind of taking it away. So add all that up together, and we are where we are today. Some of it was naivete, some of it was politics, and some of it was real legitimate lies and theft. All of that has played out. I'm not trying to say that the Chinese are the only ones who've done something bad here. Certainly Americans are to blame for the destruction of this relationship. But we are in a very, very bad place. And I just want to kind of come back to this because in our conversations about Africa, we kind of talk about the question of trust. And I want to get your take on this, Kobus, that trust in the China-Africa relationship in many ways is bound between elites that is Chinese elites and African elites. Those two trust each other a lot. Kenyatta has a lot invested in the Chinese elite. But wondering if the Kenyan people, if the Zambian people, Botswanan people also feel the same way. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear that the Chinese have a lot of work ahead of them to build trust in the civil society side of things. Well, you know, there's a lot back into that. Um, so in the first place, obviously, you know the 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 China-Africa relationship tends to be structured by bilateral relationships. You know, um, we we see these multilateral forums like FOCAC, but but they they are built on a on a foundation of lots of little bilateral relationships between China and individual African countries. So you know that those relationships themselves you know tend to favor elite elite 
you know, relations. And they tend to be built on older historical um, foundations of of China's support for anti-colonial struggle in Africa, for example, which, again, ends up being an elite-elite relationship because, you know, a lot of the people who were, who were you know, important people in the anti-colonial relationship ended up, you know, being in governments after the end of colonialism. Um, so you know, so so it's it's maybe not that surprising that that the relationship is is so elite focused. I think um, where the problem comes is that there is not the easiest relationship between elites and 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 populations in Africa. You know, it's it's and I think frequently. China has stumbled into, uh, you know, has fallen into into problems occasionally in Africa through simply assuming that if an elite is on board with something, that means that a local population is on board as well. Um, and that you, you frequently see, especially in projects that are quite far away from, from the metropole, you know, where, where another set of actors... You know, have some power in the in the local um, the the local kind of political and economic environment, and a Chinese entity would kind of sail in after signing a big deal with with the central um, state government, only to realize that the local community is actually really not on board with the project, and that there wasn't, you know, the the, the fact that the, the the central government said yes doesn't mean that the local community says yes, um, you know, and in 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 as smooth a way as that frequently happens in China. Well, let's take a look at that side of the relationship, which is the domestic politics in Africa, in African countries, and how the Chinese play into this. A lot of people will look to Zambia, for example, as a showcase for where the Chinese are suffering in their public relations, their public diplomacy, and this trust question. Uh, It seems that Zambia and Kenya, to some extent as well, has a lot, uh, a very active social, social media kind of meme and theme that is anti-Chinese. One of the theories that I have is that because Zambia itself is becoming increasingly autocratic, that the administration of Edgar Lungu is making it much more difficult for people to dissent. He is, in, you know, imposing a lot stricter controls. They're, they're doing a lot of things that are very, very autocratic. And so a lot of people are having a more difficult time to criticize the government. So then they turn their attention to the Chinese who they will criticize, but they know that the Chinese won't come back. But all of it kind of goes to this trust question because it just fuels it. And I was inspired by a comment that you made on a recent television appearance. And I was watching uh, ENCA, which is a major South African 24-hour cable news channel. And you appeared last week uh, to talk about uh, China-Africa relations. And one of the questions that came up was this issue of trust. And you'll hear in the presenter's tone in her question that she herself was very, very skeptical of the relationship. And you brought up this question that is very interesting, and I want to explore this a little bit more, that the China-Africa trust question is not only between Chinese and Africans, but also between African leaders and their constituents. Unfortunately, with investments comes the item of we're going to be capital investments in a specific specific country. In other words, we come in, we bring in our manpower, we bring in our machinery, and and also the people that are going to be working there. So not necessarily looking at growing and developing the locals within that particular country, but really bringing in from the outside and still from the finished product, taking the, the money outside of the country as well. Well, the you know the, the the partner that's not being mentioned in this in this case is African governments, and African governments 
have a lot of power to set the rules. What we've seen in research is that China tends to respond to whatever rules are, are, are present in an African country. So if an African government is quite hardcore in, in saying we need a lot of local, in, lot of local employment, uh, you know, kind of some, some transfer of skills, some, some permanent investment, mm. then China does tend to, re, to respond to that. So where we frequently see the breakdown of trust is not necessarily between China and Africa, but between African people and African governments. Because frequently African governments don't tell African people what, what the terms of the deals are and don't necessarily do as much as they can to get the best terms of the deal. Kobus, you raised some fascinating points there. And this was really, I never thought about it this way in terms of how the China-Africa relationship is as much built on the relationship between African leaders and their constituents as it is between African governments and the Chinese government. Take us a little bit farther down the road, since you didn't have a lot of time on ENCA to do that, about this question between African leaders and their constituents. Well, you know, obviously African politics is, is very complicated and it's, it's you know, the, the claim that, that African governments have on on representing their communities is frequently weakened by the fact that that those communities themselves are very divided and also because there you know there there is a, a quite a, a stark power difference frequently between between populations you know you you it, it's not necessarily a situation uh like in you know the developing the developed world you know where where you have quite empowered middle class populations you know frequently you have you have populations that suffer uh, you know, power gaps, even even if their governments are on their side. And frequently in the case of Africa, the governments might not 100% be on your side. Um, the, the result then is that, it, that distrusting the government is to a certain extent the logical thing to do, you know, so, so, so maintaining a certain healthy level of cynicism, you know, is, 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 a, is a really very useful tool in dealing with African politics as a whole, um, because people say amazing things. You know, if you just listen to press releases coming from African governments, everything seems on track. You know, um, they're always like busy with new new initiatives. They're planning new working groups. Everything is going to be amazing. And then, you know, when you actually look at the implementation of those plans, you see a different story. So so it makes a lot of sense to be skeptical about about Africa, African governments. I mean, for African populations, it also makes sense for them to be skeptical of China because China is a new arrival, you know, in, in on the African scene. And generally new arrivals on the scene in Africa haven't, you know, they, they haven't been good news, you know, in the past. So Africans, you know, can, can be, you know, it's logical for them to be worried sometimes if there's suddenly a, a very new, influential, rich kind of actor appearing on the scene. What that then leads to is this kind of situation where, um, Rumors start popping up. So, for example, the rumors that that uh, Zambian state assets have been have been given to China, you know, as 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 you know, as loan payments, um, and then you kind of get a situation where people are where it becomes really impossible to dispel the rumor because the more the government denies it, the stronger the rumor becomes. Because if the government is actively denying it, then they might. Be hiding something, um, and so and so then you have this kind of interesting situation where it becomes almost impossible to really prove or disprove, you know, whether which what which of the two has happened. So, for example, I saw this fascinating moment on the BBC recently, where 
um, you know, the a new data system um, and phone and, and computer and internet system had been put in by Chinese contractors into the Zambian National Broadcasting Corporation. So then you, you see this person, the Zambian um, activist, calling this, uh, the Zambian Broadcasting Corporation and getting a phone message in Mandarin. And then the reaction is, well, see... And but I was while watching that I was like what what are we seeing because it could either be okay hundred percent the Chinese have taken over the you know the, the Zambian Broadcasting Corporation is now completely Chinese or it could be that these contractors put in a default system that they use in China and that no one bothered to change the the answering machine message and just forgot that it's still in Mandarin either of those two could be true. Um, and it, it, you know, this kind of rumor space creates a, a, a space where it becomes impossible to really discern which is true, which be, which be, which then ends up being this thing where, you know, if you're discussing the the the, the issue of debt and asset seizures, then it becomes it's common knowledge that China has taken over several assets in China, uh, in Africa, and then you have to go, but wait, actually no assets have, have been taken over as far as I know. Uh, and then you, you know, it's rinse and repeat. You know, kind of that, that, that it, you never kind of get to a space of fact. It's always remains stuck in the space of rumor. So this question of transparency, which is what you're talking about in many respects, because one of the big problems in this relationship is that people complain about the Chinese side being so opaque and people don't know about the deals. They don't know about what's being done, how much the money is, who wears it going, and all of this. But there's the other side of it, which is the African side. I mean, it takes two to tangle here. And I'm just trying to understand why is it that the African sides, when they're negotiating with the Chinese, don't insist on more transparency and say, listen, if you're coming into our country and you're going to do business this way, we have an obligation to our people to reveal to them what the consequences are of this relationship in order to build trust and legitimacy for the African stakeholders. But that doesn't seem to be happening, does it? Well, you know, Deborah Brautingham has recently published a great article in, um, where was it? Is it American Interest? I can't no, remember. I, I think it, American Interest, I forget where it was, but it was a great article, yeah. no doubt, and we'll put a yeah. link to it in the show notes. Anyway, where she where she makes the point that you know frequently in, in these project de, these project negotiations you have local governments negotiating with Chinese companies, um, and so you have uh, you know you, you you're coming in a situation that that is tailor made for for proxy um, you know politics and and particularly for for certain kinds of local corruption you know there, there's there's incentives there from the from the companies and from the governments to boost the the price you know because they could be like neat little payoffs to the side you know kind of to grease the wheels and it can also it, and, and that works great for the company as well you know a higher a higher bill works wonderfully for the company so both sides have have interest in keeping in keeping it less transparent you know because making it very transparent could be quite embarrassing you know, kind of, if it turns out that that you know that that certain that certain kind of um, you know parts of the deal were weighted in order to to buy local compliance, for example, you know, um, so so and for so I think what one needs to be a little bit cynical there and say that I think African governments frequently have very very real reasons for not be, for not keeping these things transparent, and that that you know kind of earning public trust isn't necessarily the highest on their priority. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. 
Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Well, let's now look at it from the Chinese side. And it's very interesting because this past week there was an article that ran in the Times of London newspaper which said that the Chinese are now going to be reaching out to uh, the UK aid agency and development agency DFID, and they're going to be working because they recognize they need to kind of change the way that they do lending practices in the developing world, particularly places like Africa. I'm a little bit skeptical of that article because A, it's a single source article. B, it never had any Chinese sources in it commenting on their point of view. And it, it really reflects the ambition of the West, and not just the West, but international institutions and even the Japanese, to want the Chinese to be able to be more transparent. And again, they want to see what's going on in these loans. They really want to see it. And it's not just in the development space. This is also what the United States is pounding on the Chinese about Huawei and also some of the other kind of funding of state industries in China, which again, opacity here in China is just the nature of what it is. I mean, everything is like this. So I don't really see the Chinese changing anytime soon in terms of their behavior and really opening up to accommodate to Western standards of transparency. I also think in the current political climate, if Chinese acquiesce to Western demands to become more transparent, it could be construed as really weakness, that giving in to Western demands. And we are in a very contentious period of history right now where I don't see a leader like Xi Jinping really trying to accommodate someone like Donald Trump or the World Bank or the IMF in that sense, because I think he has an obligation to his stakeholders to become and position himself as a very, very strong kind of uh, you know uncompromising leader in that sense. So I think we're at a standoff here, but the consequences for the Chinese, going back to what we talked about with the Americans, Right now in Africa, they have the trust of leaders. I am not so sure that they have the trust of African people. Despite the investments that they've made in soft power, despite the amount of money they've put in aid, they have been absolutely abysmal in communicating uh, all of the good things that they have done to build a story of trust. I know it's really starting to get under their skin. They want to be able to develop this trust with civil society groups, with the average person in pop culture. Um, I've talked to people here off the record, of course, never on the record, and they, they really do want that, but they are just so terrible at it, and they have a system that really doesn't make it easy for them to be trustworthy because, again, there is no transparency in the relationship. But I think we're going to approach a crossroads, maybe not today, but in two to three years, because if the political relationship with African leaders like Kenyatta starts to suffer, and what it means is that if Kenyatta starts to pay a price that is too high domestically for his relationship with China, if he becomes vulnerable to opposition parties and opposition leaders because of his closeness with China, he may end up turning on China as well because China becomes a liability more than an asset. And at that point, we may be in a situation where China doesn't have anywhere to go. Yes, no, I definitely, I, I can definitely see see what you mean. Um, in the first place, I, um, before getting to that, um, I just need to to just table a basic thing that that I think is really important to to kind of push back against this very default idea that we have um, in discussions of China Africa relations that the West necessarily presents a, a unified you know, kind of front against corruption. Um, you know, a recent OECD report has shown that only four OECD countries actually actively enforce their, their anti-corruption 
legislation in relation to their company's foreign dealings. You know, so those are, you know, um, I mean, those are four rich countries, but they, they, they're certainly not the whole block, you know. Um, and, and, and I think in many, in many cases, the, not only is the legislation not enforced, there might not be even such amazing legislation in place, and frequently the, the data is very lacking. So I, I, I read a very interesting <laughs> World Bank self-critique where they made the point that, that up to deep into the 90s, not only did the World Bank not enforce any anti-corruption, you know, measures, but they had zero data on what even constituted corruption in their own deals in through decades and decades of work in the global south. So, you know, the kind of the even in cases where, where there is strong anti-corruption anti, um, legislation in place and it is being enforced, that only happens through kicking and screaming by civil society in, you know, within those countries. And a lot of it is relatively recent. So the idea that the West has been this like a champion, you know, knight on the horse fighting corruption in the global south is nonsense. You well, know? let me just pick up um, on that. Uh, let me just, while we're on that, let me just pick up on that because the way that the United States is leading the charge against China, not just in Africa, but around the world, is to present itself as exactly that, Cobus, what you're saying, as the paragon of trust. You cannot trust the Chinese. You can trust us. Uh, I just wrote an essay this past week on the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, how they are positioning themselves as the We're Not China Development Finance Agency. It's on LinkedIn if you want to read it. I said it's a bad idea for them to position themselves that way. But basically, in essence, they're doing what you are saying, that we believe in transparency, we believe in sustainability, we believe in everything that the Chinese are not. <laughs> now, let's not underestimate the power of the United States here, because someone like U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has a very big megaphone, and he is using that megaphone at every opportunity to really try and erode trust between uh, not just Africans and Chinese, but again, in this case, between South Americans and Chinese. Last week, he was in Chile speaking to a group in Santiago. And I have a piece of sound here that I want you to listen to from a speech that he gave. And the themes that he's raised in Santiago talking to South Americans are identical to the themes that he's raised in Africa. But all of it goes to this question of trust. If you've been listening recently, you've watched the Trump administration speak quite a bit about the risks that China presents. Make no mistake, China is an important trade partner for Chile, for the United States as well. President Trump's been working hard to make sure our trade with China is fair and reciprocal. But you should know there is a problem. The problem, though, is when China does business in places like Latin America, it often injects corrosive capital into the economic bloodstream, giving life to corruption and eroding good governance. The strategy of China is clear. They take economic control of countries. China, Russia, they're showing up at the doorstep. But once they enter the house, we know the debt traps, they, they will use debt traps, they will disregard rules, and they will spread disorder in your home. Thankfully, you all, South America is not buying it. You should know that the United States will stand behind you. I, I mean, Cobus. Secretary Pompeo did not mince words there. Corrosive capital, corruption, debt traps. And I believe that those words filter into 
the body politic. They filter into the news coverage. The debt trap narrative, of course, is something that is aggressively promoted by the United States. Deborah Braudigam in this essay, to me, was a seminal essay because she really challenged it in many, many ways. 3,000 projects that the Chinese have funded worldwide under the Belt and Road Initiative, and there is yet a single example of a national asset seizure except except Habandota, which she then goes into detail to talk about how that was not a seizure. But yet the Americans push it so hard. And yet, and this is to me, I think this gets into people's minds and, and it's just something, it just goes. And, and journalists take it on stock value. I can't believe that the news coverage has not evolved beyond where it was 10 years ago on these issues. And I think it's in part because of the American campaign, which is incredibly effective, and the Chinese simply are not answering it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and so, you know, obviously the American government is free to, you know, to present its view of, of this relationship. You know, it's absolutely it's right. I think, however, that, um, you know, in, in, in a space in, in the China-Africa relationship where it, it makes a lot of sense to be cynical about what African governments say, and then because African governments are, are working so closely with China, it then becomes, it makes sense to be cynical about what China says as well. In, in that space, frequently then, the debt trap narrative comes off as, oh, this is a, a necessary, like, you know, hard-nosed corrective to all of this kind of win-win rhetoric, you know? Um, and I think it, people need to be clear that we're not talking about one ideologically corrupted, uh, you know, viewpoint, which is then cor corrupt, you know, corrected by, like, hard facts. You're talking about two ideologically driven ways of talking about the relationship. You know, um, both of those, there are clear stakes involved for, for the actors who are pushing that narrative. Um, and in the case of, of the way that the debt is discussed in Africa, frequently those stakes are on the ground in Africa too. You know, so it's not a surprise that that some of the, the harshest criticism coming out of Africa against China and against government's relationship with China is coming from opposition parties. Because of course, of course it is. It's you know, kind of they, they, they have the most to win from from critiquing this relationship. Once they're in power, as we saw with Michael Sata in Zambia, Zambia years ago, then of course the tune the tune changes because then they're suddenly on the hook for the development of the nation. And if you're talking about the development of the nation, then you're talking about like billions need that need to be invested into ports and in road networks and, and rail networks. And then it becomes a real question of who is able to do that on the international stage. And that changes the relationship with China a lot because they are one of the few people who are willing and able to actually do that for Africa. You know, and that that kind of like like dollars and cents kind of realization, you know, ends up ends up I, th I think really supporting the relationship. So in, in terms of Kenyatta losing trust with China, um, maybe trust isn't really the only issue involved. You know, the other issue involved is this very hard calculus about who can pay for these development goals that these governments have to sign up to in order to be elected. But I get that. You and I understand that. We kind of draw the lines between the fact that these are cold, rational, strategic decisions about tapping capital that if the Chinese do not provide, it's not available anywhere else at the prices that the Chinese are offering. OK, I mean, people pretend oftentimes as if there's a choice and people like Kenyatta simply cannot go onto the global capital markets and get 2% loans for the most part. Some people say they can, some people say they can't, but they're not credit worthy countries that can borrow like the United States or the United Kingdom. I saw a statistic 
couple weeks ago that Zambia pays almost 10 to 11% interest on its loans and the UK pays 2%. I mean, that is the yeah, inequity and, in the global keep, finance keep system. In mind, keep in mind that, um, that, you know, for all of the talk about debt trap and, and Chinese, the danger of Chinese debt, you know, which, you know, the danger of, of debt distress in Africa is very real. But you have to keep in mind that still the majority of African debt now is to, is to private sector lenders. That's right. You know, so so kind of so so going going out on the on the you know to the international market to, to look for loans, that might be more of a problem actually than Chinese debt, just simply financially. But this is what annoys me about what's going on. And again, I say this, people may interpret what I'm saying as somehow defending the Chinese. I am not defending the Chinese. They can defend themselves. They're more than capable of doing that. What I am offended by is how the discussion gets warped with lies. And the lies we're talking about here is that when the, we talk about the actual money paid out to, uh, to, to creditors, 55%, according to the Jubilee Foundation, fi, uh, the Jubilee Fund, 55%, uh, uh, Jubilee Debt Campaign, that's what it's called, 55% of all the interest in Africa goes to private creditors. Only 17% goes to the Chinese. We're talking three times as much. And so, again, there's a failure in trust here. And going back to your point that you talked about with ENCA, which is African leaders are not making the case to their own people about why this is important. You and I make the connection. We understand why they're doing it. But clearly, a lot of people in Africa do not understand. Clearly, a lot of people in China do not understand, which is why the Chinese government had to censor the debates over FOCAC after the FOCAC last year, because a lot of people here in China think that the $60 billion is charity, giving it away. They don't understand that it's loans. So we have a failure and a breakdown of trust now in almost every aspect of this relationship except the elite to elite. And I feel that that's hanging by a thread in some countries where they're going to face a lot of domestic political pressure in Africa when elections come up to, to really account for this rising debt that the Chinese are being blamed for justifiably or not. So trust really is the glue that's holding this together. And I'm worried that African leaders are not being truthful with their people. The Chinese are not being truthful with their people. Chinese are not being truthful with the rest of the world. And African leaders are not being truthful with the rest of the world. And certainly the West, led by people like Mike Pompeo, are definitely not being true when they're promoting a lot of this hostility, which is not grounded in fact. Yeah, no, I, you know, I completely share that that concern. I mean, you know, one one maybe slightly more optimistic view of looking at it is that in some cases, you know, the the breakdown of a relationship might not be the end of the relationship as a whole. You know, so so for example, um, I don't know if you saw, like recently, there was this interesting case in in Malaysia, where you know Malaysia was has become famous for for being one of the governments um, that cancelled uh, BRI deals. Um, there was a, I think, a, a rail installation that it was a that, twenty billion dollar. Uh, it was a massive rail package that Mahathir yeah. Mohamed cancelled when he came into office because he felt that it was not financed well. And then now it turns out, well, lo and behold. Yeah, um, it's been they renegotiated. They renegotiated. And Mahathir then even said something else very interesting. He said, if he has to choose between the United States and China, he's going to choose China. I mean, he came mm. out very, very clear in a South China Morning Post interview on that. So that was fascinating. 
Yeah, and I mean, the deal wasn't just renegotiated. It was shaved by a third. The cost was, was lowered by a third. Um, you know, so I think that's a significant victory. It's a, definitely a significant victory for the Malaysian people. Um, you know, so so I think if... The, so there is the potential that if these deals kind of get mauled by local politics, that it, it might end up being creating better deals. You know, if, again, you know, if everyone is on the same page and if definitely if the population and the government is on the same page, you know, which is which is always a, you know, question up for debate in, in, in many African countries. So this Malaysia deal is very interesting because the BRI critics and China's critics jumped all over it, the same way that they jumped all over the Sierra Leone airport deal that was cancelled. And people are ready to pounce that any time a deal is canceled. And I think what the Malaysia example offers us is that the politics on this are so much more complicated than the social media memes will let you believe. So don't trust what you're seeing on Twitter when you see XYZ deal is done. This is an example of the pushback against China. Because a lot of this, just like in Africa, these deals are being sucked into very, very complicated domestic politics that oftentimes have nothing to do with China. These are about rivals battling it out with each other, and China happens to be the currency that they're using. But it really sometimes has nothing to do with it. Not always, but sometimes. So, okay, so this was a little bit of a rambling show that we did today. We're just, again, it's a complicated issue on this question of trust. It's something that we've been thinking about in the context of the U.S.-China relationship and China's increasing difficulties that it's facing in many parts of the world where people are demanding more transparency, more accountability, and the Chinese are struggling to provide answers for that. I mean, really, really struggling. It doesn't seem like the Chinese are making a dramatic shift in their approach to, to become more transparent and to accommodate these requests. And one has to wonder that if we look down the road in two, three, four years, if there isn't an evolution of the Chinese communication strategy and the approach that the Chinese are taking with Belt and Road issues, with the big loans, with the rising debt crisis in some African countries, will the trust erode at the political leadership level, not just at the civil society level, where it already seems that they're facing some difficulties and some headwinds. We would love to hear what you think about this issue. It's a complicated issue. Kobus and I were a little bit all over the map, but I found that Kobus's point was the most salient, and this is the one I want to leave you with, which is that when we look at trust in the China-Africa relationship, don't only look at the China and the African side, but also look at African leaders and their people. There's a trust deficit that's there as well, and that plays into it. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. We'll be back to our normal format with a guest. We wanted to take a break, mix it up this week. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we're answering emails now almost within 24 hours. So if you'd like to kind of send us a note, tell us what you think, uh, engage our discussion here and kind of take it to us on email, we'd love to hear that, especially criticisms. We do like to hear what the critics think. Uh, Kobus, you can reach him at Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com, and you can reach me at Eric, E-R-I-C, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And of course, you can also find us all over social media, which will leave you that information at the end of the show. So until next week, we'll be back again with another show. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.